welcome to episode 474 of the Cyber Law Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and about to express views not shared by our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, and sometimes not by our pets that they dissent, you might hear. Joining me for the News Roundup, Paul Stephen, Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia School of Law and a former counselor at the State Department and the Special Counsel to the Defense Department. Nick Weaver, crowd favorite and the chief mad scientist at Scary Technologies and a temporary lecturer at UC Davis. He's on the academic job market. So if you're interested in hearing him in your school, you should get in touch with him. Maury Shank, London-based lawyer and technologist. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS the host and chief provocateur for today's program. There's a lot of news to get through and some of it's pretty hefty law. So we're going to jump right in. The Supreme Court is taking on its biggest content regulation case of the internet age. Paul, the Solicitor General recommended that the Supreme Court take two cases and actually address two issues. And it looks like court did exactly what the SG asked for. And indeed, they denied cert this morning on the cross appeals from uh, Florida. So we have the court is leaving in place the aspects of the Florida and Texas laws that impose a general disclosure rule on the platforms, but are taking up the efforts to both constrain curating by the platforms and, and requiring this individualized disclosure burden when people are constrained, either kicked off or their traffic is cut back. The uh, companies regard this as First Amendment expression, analogizing themselves to newspapers, even though they are content providers the way newspapers are. Florida and Texas are saying, no, curating is not editing, and they're analogizing this to cases such as Turner versus the FCC, the mandatory carry rules, and, and saying that there's no real difference between the platforms and the cable company. I myself, well, I think several things, Stuart. I think, first of all, none of this should be done under the First Amendment. This is a classic Bibbs preemption case, and, and we ought to kick out all these state laws as creating an undue burden on interstate commerce. But since no one... Really? I've the dormant commerce clause? Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, especially when you take into account the European efforts to, you know, lean in. And I think California is contemplating legislation that would exactly contradict what Florida and Texas are trying to do, as the Europeans now are doing. I, I, I think we ought to have a united federal front on this stuff rather than having a diversity of inconsistent state regulation. But since no one cares about that position, including you, I guess. But I'm a skeptic. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't myself think that either the newspaper nor the cable carrier precedents are really exactly on point. And I think there's some especially problematic things about the Florida law, which says if you're a politician or a news organization, you can't be kicked off unless you're committing a federal crime. See Alex Jones. I think that's problematic. I think the case for curating and joining some First Amendment protection is substantial, although I note it also is inconsistent with what the companies have been saying with respect to Section 230. So I think the more First Amendment protection they get for their curatorial decisions, the more they undermine their 230 protection. And I know we're coming to that issue 
at the end of this hour. That's what struck me as well when I was reading the SG's brief is that they're saying curation is speech, which, you know, the states are not going to say that curation is not speech. They're going to say this is censorship. This is a censorship by people who have enormous power over what we all are allowed to say. And to call that speech defies the free expression values at the heart of the First Amendment. And I resonate to that argument. But it, it also is the case that if curation is speech, then Section 230 is a direct subsidy to particular speakers. It says you can do curation free of any liability. Nobody else gets to do that, but we're going to give you an immunity so that you can do more curation of the sort that you prefer, you of the five companies that matter now to what we're allowed to say in America. And that strikes me as raising a First Amendment question about Section 230. Right, right. So two points, one where we're in agreement, one where we might differ. I think that if the companies win in this case, that serious rethinking of 230 will be in order. And secondly, I'm a formalist when it comes to state action, Stuart. I, I don't like First Amendment values talk. I think yep. it's Congress shall make no law, I believe are the words. And the idea that there is a public forum, you know, a prune yard concept that a, a social media company is like a shopping mall. I thought prune yard was misconceived. And I think that imposing First Amendment constraints on the social media companies isn't optimal. I think we can compete them out of business if they do a lousy job. I don't think that the idea that you're a captive to network effects is actually well documented. And I would just let the market blow up the bad, you know, as arguably some people believe Musk has done with Twitter. But Twitter is a good example. All right thinking people hate Twitter now. And yet it seems to march on and many of them are still on there. Well, it turns out right thinking people don't have a lot of market power. Ah, maybe that's it. I wish. <laughs> okay. I agree with you. Those are going to be a hot topic here. You know, even if you accept that curation is a kind of speech and expressing yourself by saying we won't let these people speak on our platform is a form of speech. Is it really a burden on that form of speech to the extent that the First Amendment should be involved to say, and you need to explain why you're doing it? Isn't that just saying, hey, you want to speak by censoring people, then explain what it is you're saying when you censor them. Well, the, the court did uphold requirements under both Florida and Texas law that says you have to tell us more than you've been telling us about your policies. But the distinguishing point is you can't give individualized explanations. The company are saying, you know, we're dealing with millions of incidents. And unless you let us use AI to make those individualized responses, we really can't do that effectively. And I have some sympathy with that position. Yeah, sorry. life as a censor is tough. I mean, uh, the East Germans would have told us that too. Yeah. Okay. My question on this is the court rulings on the preliminaries in this are exactly what the SG asked for. And that raises for me the question, are they already in the tank for the SG's position? Is a combination of the left, which thinks that by and large, big company Silicon Valley censorship works in their favor, plus the pro-business inclinations of the chief and Justice Kavanaugh mean that there's already a majority to strike these things down? 
Well, it'll be interesting to see. There may be more more likely than not, I would say. I think we can predict uh, where Justices Alito and Thomas are going to go on this. And, and are they going to be able to pick up a third, much less a fifth vote is interesting. I would say unlikely, but not impossible. Well, I'm sure there's some flaky statutory argument that would bring Justice Gorsuch along. <laughs> okay. If, if you're trying to align with the EU or at least avoid unnecessary conflicts, I would note that individualized explanations is already a requirement that the Europeans are getting ready to impose. So the notion that they can't do it, it's too much of a burden, might be belied by what they're going to have to do in Europe. Whereas the EU is also getting ready to have a big fight over disinformation probably with Twitter because they hate Twitter and intend to come after them for a variety of reasons, but in large part, a failure to hire enough people to do the takedowns for disinformation. Is there anything that we can learn from the EU effort to implement a disinformation mandate? Well, I don't think the Europeans are concerned about the economic viability of these companies. No. Indeed, I think they would prefer to see them go out of business. I think we're in a chicken game with the Europeans where at some point uh, the big social media providers just geolocate and don't make their services available in countries subject to EU jurisdiction. Or couldn't they just say, fine, you've got rules and we will have people who will take down disinformation inside the EU? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we've already been doing that. That's how we comply with the German hate speech and more memorabilia rules. We could do that. But I, I mean, to the extent that the cumulative effect of the EU legislation is really hostile to social media and data collection as such, I think we're going to come to a point uh, when uh, the big platforms will have to decide whether it's worth it or at least create a separate shadow entity that behaves very differently, that works only in the EU yeah. and cut off the EU from the rest of the world. It's only apparently 10% of Facebook's market, which is kind of surprising. And, you know, you could, if you were Facebook or Twitter, you could say, we're not going to let you log on with an IP in Europe. And everybody would just get some kind of mechanism for faking their IP. So Columbia professor Anu Bradford has a new book out that takes just the opposite position for me. And I think the world of her and her work, I think she's terrific. But that doesn't stop me from thinking that her optimism about the uh uh, she admits as a economic force, the EU is declining. She just think it's it's big enough to slow down its fail and to have a big impact on these regulation of social media and particularly the privileging of a European conception of privacy. I think their decline is going faster than she thinks, than any of my European friends thinks. And I may be the crank here. I don't know. You're not going to get there before me. <laughs> Nick. The other thing that might happen is the rise of the federated model. So with like the Mastodon style federated model, Facebook basically creates instead of Facebook, several Facebook federations and the Federation of EU is no Nazis allowed and the Federation of the US is whatever. and Some Nazis allowed. <laughs> as opposed to the Federation for Twitter, where it's all Nazis allowed, because let's face it, the head of it is a Nazi. So first, I'm struck by the fact that Mastodon seems to be surviving without a lot of complaint, even though they really effectively have no moderation in the sense that anybody who wants to have an instance that allows Nazis is able to do it. And 
Maybe they get banned from other interactions with other parts of Mastodon. Maybe they don't. But there doesn't seem to have been a massive regulatory crackdown on Mastodon. And I can't help thinking that there is a there's a solution there that nobody has spent much time dealing with as a practical matter in which even Facebook could say, you know what, we're going to have four different curation regimes and you pick which one you want. And if one of them is illegal in the EU, the people who are running that moderation system will have to answer to the EU. We're just going to be a pipe that provides a whole bunch of stuff, but doesn't actually decide who gets to see what. Well, you're talking about a federation where there is no free movement between the components. No, no. They, people, of course, can people can move. But that's right. Once you choose a moderator, that's your moderator until you choose differently. From the EU perspective, first of all, I wouldn't be too sure the EU is going to fall apart anytime soon. It's easy from a U.S. perspective to predict the downfall of China or the EU. And I think it's likely to be somewhat resilient. But I totally agree that the Digital Services Act is it's very much aimed at U.S. providers. You know, they won't mind them going down. 16 of the 19 entities that have been designated to be subject to the restrictions are U.S. companies. And there's two from China and one from Germany. But more to the point, I think it's, you know, it's a very different legal regime. So you don't have the whole First Amendment overhang. Rather than a right to curate, we're talking about an obligation to curate in the EU, which is a completely different kettle of fish. And the most interesting thing about it is these obligations are enforced now or interesting for me. And everybody is saying they're complying, but nobody is saying how they're complying. And I think we're going to see, right. we're going to learn a lot in the next, I don't know, six months to a year about how people are complying as these things start to exist for a while. And that's going to be really interesting. Yeah, they, they have these trusted flaggers that are going to be designated by European governments. And sooner or later, there's going to be a trusted flagger who just makes it their business to flood their least favored social media platform with requests to take down until the platform can't keep up, which won't be hard. And then they'll be able to ding them. Yep. Okay. Well, we're not done with this topic yet because there are a lot of stories now about YouTube and Facebook basically caving into Indian pressure to allow Hindu nationalists, I guess, to continue to use their platforms, even though they're making threats, they're certainly engaging in anti-Muslim speech, and in some cases, even posting YouTubes where they chase down Muslims who are trafficking in cows and beat them up, and it turns out later, in some cases, killed them. They were getting monetized. They were getting promoted. So that was mainly YouTube. But Facebook also allowed a government-coordinated, uh, inauthentic behavior ring that was run by the government to keep going for a long time because they don't believe that they can take that stuff down without having their employees at risk. Nick, is there anything to this story beyond the fact that if you've got a government, even an allegedly democratic government that feels strongly about something, they're going to bend the social media to their will? Well, the first thing is that it's important to consider that India is not a full democracy anymore. It is best thought as a democratic theocracy. I don't think it's ever been the kind of democracy that we have imagined. They have 
civil wars going most of the time in some of their states for years under both governments. Yes, but these days they really need to take lessons from Putin. Novichok has a bit more style than just gunning somebody down in Canada. Come on, guys, get with yeah, the that program. Is, that, that, that was tacky. I know how to use drones. <laughs> Actually, they do. They also have nukes, which is a limiting factor and a space program that's probably used as an ICBM development lab because, hey, why not? There's two separate strains going on here. There's the profit motive, which is what YouTube often did. And so like there's reporting on this vigilante cow rescuer who probably killed at least one person who wasn't demonetized until way, way later. And in fact, even got an award from YouTube for being such a good content creator. And then there's the Facebook India story. And the Facebook India story is in many ways more disturbing because it's specifically Facebook has a significant local presence in India. And there was significant concern by the local employees that shutting down and outing the government campaign that was from the Indian government would result in arrests for treason even of Facebook employees. And this brings up the question of either you accept this as the cost of doing business and in the process, don't respect national borders. So it isn't just you let the stuff fester in India alone. It's India is going to make sure that you don't shut down that network outside India extraterritoriality for the win. And it's hard with India because they're a huge country. They're economically significant. And unlike China and Russia, the social network companies have significant local employees. Yep. I can't help thinking that, you know, and as I sort of said already, that the internet and new technology is a challenge to elites, challenge to the status quo. And about 2016, elites all over the world woke up to the fact that allowing the social media companies to algorithmically decide what your people got to see by way of news was a threat to their ability to shape the news to fit their inclinations. And that explains Modi, that explains Bolsonaro, that explains the European Union. All of them are basically trying to get control of the algorithms that determine what people read, what news diet they consume in their jurisdiction and maybe globally. And so this is basically a challenge or a fight between the knowledge class and the local establishment, or in the United States, between one part of the knowledge class and another part of the knowledge class. But at the end of the day, the locals who care enough are going to win this. Paul, I'm borrowing your labels, but this is a globalist threat to people who don't believe in globalism. And it's a globalism reinforcement for people who do, but not everybody's buying in. And you see in Russia and China, successful efforts to force out the globalist knowledge companies. Yep. All right. Another way of looking at this entire set of content curation and telling us what we can and can't say a phenomena is that it's all an antitrust violation. And we've seen a lot of antitrust cases. The one that came this week was against Amazon. We previewed it last time, but now we can read it. Paul, what does the Amazon lawsuit say? Well, uh, a lot of the complaint is redacted, so we, we don't know for sure. There are two general theories, as I understand it. One is that 
access to the buy button requires a commitment that you offer no lower price anywhere else. And the other is access to Prime requires paying the fee for Prime. The first, the FTC is styling as a forcing providers to raise prices. And the latter, they're calling tying. I think the first theory is more interesting and it turns on facts. I mean, if what Amazon is doing is doing what we want, some want the federal government to do with drug purchasing, which is to say, we insist on your best price. You know, that's supposed to be pro-consumer. And uh, on the other hand, if what Amazon is doing, which I, I'm suspicious that this could be true, but maybe it's true, they're trying to maintain high prices. I don't see why it's in their model to do so, since they're big on volume rather than profit margins. Uh, so I confess to being a little conflicted on this. I'm prepared to believe that these things are happening and maybe even prepared to believe that they're a bad thing. Yeah. But if you tie the two things together, the first argument makes more sense. What they're saying is Amazon is forcing its sellers to use Amazon fulfillment and advertising. There are two different things, Stuart. I mean, the, the one, the first thing is access to the buy button in the upper. I understand. But it, doesn't, it applies not only to people who are using Amazon right. Prime. The second thing is about tying the Amazon Prime services. But I guess my point is it drives as they say, you know, 50% of the revenue that people are getting from selling on Amazon goes back to Amazon as fees and other costs. You can see how at some point that could start to push up the cost of the sellers on Amazon to the point where they have to raise their prices. And then the lowest price policy basically requires them to raise their prices elsewhere where they wouldn't. You know, quite possible. I have had some tangential involvement with the FTC's last big time case, which was Qualcomm. And I was struck then, this was what, three years ago, I think, how weak their economics were in that case, how weak their mm -hmm. were, and they got, you know, shut down by the Ninth Circuit. So, I mean, your, your theory is interesting and conceivable, but I'd like to see the FTC make the case. It's going to take time for them to make that case. I think that's right. This is not exactly an open and shut case, for sure. It's very fact-driven. Is it really the case that you are going to be totally disadvantaged if you don't use all of Amazon's fulfillment services and use their ads and the like? Or can you survive on the platform without doing that? That's all just facts. And the lowest price policy sounds like a perfectly good thing. I want the price I see on Amazon to be the lowest price I, I'm going to see so I don't have to go running around double checking. I want Amazon on my side. Exactly. Exactly. Recently, I have discovered that it's really not always to the lowest price. And so you do need to check. Nick, did you have something? Oh, it's also that right now Amazon is so, to use the term from Cory Doctorow, in shitify that actually finding the product you want on Amazon is remarkable roulette. So I want a replacement webcam for my work location. I know the model I want. The lowest price gives up a refurbished one from who knows what. And the Amazon third-party sellers are notoriously bad. That Amazon has problems. I'm not sure if this is the solution versus, say, they have joint and several liability for products sold on their website. Yeah. This slightly ended the uh, Dr. O term, the encrapification hypothesis is really a colorful way of saying 
monopolization is a big problem in this area. Once you have a platform, the temptation to monopolize is enormous. And I have to say, Paul, that does strike me as correct, that if you've got all of the audience and you get them by giving them really good deals, then you can gradually reduce those deals in order to make sure that the sellers come in and are locked in as well. And then at that point, you've got sellers and buyers all together. They have to be there in order to, because the other guys are there. And then you can just start collecting all of the rent that comes from having created this form. So maybe, Stuart, of course. But on the other hand, of course, the theoretical argument would be, Aaron, directors, you know, that there's always a market for the market. You know, just looking at these industries, I mean, they grew fast very quickly, and I see no reason why they can't fail just as quickly. To me, encrapification is a sign that they're inviting new entrants. Uh, yeah. And I think the network effect argument is weaker than people think it is, uh, although Justice Thomas is a big supporter of it. With all due respect to him, I think the evidence that networks can collapse quickly and be replaced by other more ruthless competitors is not absent. Well, all I can say is it really took an enormous effort on Amazon's part to make us feel sorry for Walmart. So, okay. Well, who feels sorry for the casinos? Nick, MGM, Caesars shut down pretty hard by hackers who seem to be doing it. I won't say they're doing it for the lulls, they're doing it for the money, but they're the same people who were doing it for the lulls five years ago. Well, it's more that we are now in a world of a international joint venture. So the Russians have been masters of the ransomware game for years now. And there's been a lot in the US, notably the they came up as SIM swappers and targeting cryptocurrency investors and the lulls and getting the OG accounts and all that, that are really good at the social engineering. And we have seen a unification of the two. So both MGM and Caesars were hit by the same, basically joint operation ransomware gang, where you have US-based social engineers to Russian-based infrastructure for compromising and payment, and they went to town. So this is all the same international comparative advantage that we see in globalization everywhere. The U.S. gets to do the marketing and somebody else does the back office tech. Yeah. So basically, instead of outsourced to India, it's outsourced to Crimea. Now, the thing that strikes me as interesting is ransomware is a collective action problem. That if nobody paid ransomware, ransomware wouldn't exist. But if some people pay ransomware, you are probably going to be the one who pays. So both Caesar and MGM were hit by the same ransomware game. Caesar paid some 20 million and is all fine. MGM is still recovering. And so in the end, it probably cost MGM a lot more. And also the ransomware gangs are getting more hardball. Some of the gangs are talking about requiring a minimum payment of 1.5% of global revenue for companies targeted. That's the EU's example. Yep. And it makes me start to think that because this is a collective action problem, it is time for thinking seriously about banning the payments to ransomware. And uh, I think you just drive it underground. Uh, no, because the thing is, is you don't get much bribery from U.S. company to foreign officials because the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act is very seriously taken. And I think the same needs to be done for ransomware. I'll actually argue that you could do that already. Just OFAC all the gangs. 
that one of yeah. the points of the ransomware negotiators is guaranteeing you that the ransomware gang you're paying is not on the OFAC list. And so if right. they just literally OFAC them all, that might actually make a difference. Well, we'll see. I'm kind of surprised. It does seem to me that by now, everybody should have figured out that they need warm backups. So I don't understand why when they encrypt your stuff, you can't. Because a lot of it is that you don't know that the backup is good until you restore. This is right. why, for example, when I'm migrating computers, I actually do a backup and a restore onto the new one. So I know I have a working backup. If the backup is online, it is attacked. If it's right. offline, it is by nature known to be out of date. Plus, there's all the recovery time of basically rebuilding your infrastructure from scratch. Your domain controllers get nuked. You're in a world of hurt. Look at what happened to Maersk. Maersk had yeah. backups. It happened to be what allowed them to get bootstrapped up, though, was a domain controller that was offline and unplugged at the time because it isn't just the data that needs to be backed up. It's all the configuration, the ability to restore operations. And that is actually something that isn't really tested and is really hard to test. How do you test the ability to wipe every machine in your institution? Because if you miss one, that might be the wrong one. Restore everything, restore all the data, be back up and running in 24 hours. Okay, fair enough. And then that explains why somebody as sophisticated as MGM was in so much trouble. All right. Maury, the European Court of Human Rights said that the UK JCHQ was in violation of the Convention on Human Rights by virtue of bulk interception. I looked at the opinion and it looks to me as though this is talking about a UK law that's already been superseded. So I wondered how significant the decision was. Well, so you're right. It's about was about the regulation of investigatory powers act, which was superseded nearly, well, six, seven years ago by the investigatory powers act. But it's significant for another reason. The bulk interception regime has survived. It had been found both by European courts and by the UK investigatory powers tribunal to be largely value valid, but to have some infirmities to it. And what was at issue in this case is the tribunal had said, yeah, there was some infirmities, but there is no remedy for people who are outside the UK because the operation of the European Convention on Human Rights is territorial. And what the court found is because the interception happened in the UK, that the territorial jurisdiction did apply. Or actually, maybe not even the interceptions because they got some of them from NSA. The processing, yeah. The processing and the uh, reporting of what was being said. But if the court had said, as, as, as I remembered in the old Big Brother Watch case, you can fix this, I assume that the UK has come up with a, at least a plausible fix. It might, it might still be subject to challenge, but it's probably not going to end up losing most of its authority. Oh, yeah. I mean, most of the bulk interception authority has survived. The UK has a fix for it. That's not going to go away. The only really important point out of this is the jurisdictional one, that in other contexts, there will be jurisdiction over interception for foreign persons for other claims under the uh, ECHR. Okay. Another good reason we shouldn't be part of that, because 
everybody in the world would be suing us because, you know, we collect around the world uh, and they'd all want to get in and tell us how to do that or how to do it. Well, you know, you can be anti-European, but I, even I think the U.S. joining the ECHR is a little too European. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Paul, more liability uh, with social issues buried not too deep in it. The court just said that Section 230 does not extend to protect Facebook when Facebook is charged with having discriminated by allowing people to say, I want young people to see my ads. I want men or women to see my ads. So, I mean, the result of that lawsuit, if it goes the way it's going so far, is, you know, I'm going to get feminine care products and my wife is going to get ads for how to maintain your beard which does seem a little weird, but Facebook's argument was, we don't have to even worry about that. We're not saying that. The advertisers say, are saying it, and Section 230 protects us. Right. So it's the uh, Intermediate Court of Appeals of California. Facebook's argument is that we're only doing what our customers request, and the issue is whether that kind of curating is protected by 230. California Intermediate Court said, no, it's not. I actually think, linking back to what we opened this podcast with, if curating this First Amendment argument really takes off, the downside is going to be, well, even this kind of curating on consumer demand is going to be covered by state regulation. This happens to be a state law directed at insurance. You know, you might be surprised things can change the way we think about gender has, has certainly changed a lot in my lifetime. But it might be a while before you violate state law by requiring that you be sold hygienic products. So to me, it's interesting exactly as a counterpoint to the First Amendment cases. It is interesting, I guess. Their argument would be we have a right to curate and we've decided to curate the programs, the, the, the ads to women so that they don't include stuff that the advertisers don't want to show to women. Yeah, what they're doing is accommodating what under California law apparently is discrimination on the behalf of the insurance companies. So, you know, there are discrimination laws now that would not allow you to say discriminatory things, in, at least in certain contexts. And you don't get a First Amendment pass for, for saying those things. So I think that that would be the argument is, sure, there's a First Amendment argument here, but sometimes it has to give way to our policy on discrimination. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it depends on, on whether we're talking about curation that reflects those demands. And if, if we think that the the customer, the seller is violating a discrimination rule, I don't see why you should let the social media companies using their algorithms off the hook. I mean, I can see a kind of joint and several liability argument here. And what the court said was essentially there's a doctrine under 230 that says you can't take advantage of 230 if you're the speaker and you can become the speaker, at least in certain contexts, just by providing a drop down menu in which the real speaker makes choices about what they're going to say. And that makes you complicit in all of their speech and therefore, you're not a publisher, you're a speaker. I'm not sure that that doctrine really travels well, but that is the way the court got there. Yeah, well, I think the problem is in the underlying substantive law rather than the interpretation of 230. I mean, the reason the cases got thrown out last term was not because 230 did or did not protect them, but because 
the underlying tort theory was just cockamamie, to use a technical term. And, yeah. and I think that's where we should be focusing rather than regarding 230, as you put it earlier, a subsidy to social media companies to not have to comply with otherwise conventional regulation. Yeah, I think that the rise of targeted advertising has kind of forced us to look at some contradictions. We Nobody would be comfortable with somebody advertising a product that says, by the way, we're not going to sell this to black people. At the same time, we know that people buy ads, not necessarily so they don't have to have black people see their ads, but to make sure that only rich people see their ads. Uh, you might ask the question, well, if they already are doing that, what's different between that and saying, I actually want this only shown to people that Facebook knows? are making more than $100,000 a year. And yet when they say, I really want to show these ads just to women and to people under 45, it makes the discrimination much more palpable and easier to police. And then we get these wacky things where Facebook is going to end up having to show us ads that nobody wants to show us and that we don't want to see just in order to meet the standards of the Unruh Act in California. I think, Stuart, that the law of discrimination is a work in progress. It's evolved uh, considerably, and we ought to be focusing on that point rather than the issue of uh, social media company complicity. Could be. The problem is the underlying law of discrimination, not whether or not a social media company contributes to it. Yeah, but it's so much fun to blame them. <laughs> okay, so Maureen, the UK is also pushing a competition law basis for digging into everybody's artificial intelligence model. I thought that was interesting and maybe worth at least figuring out why does the UK think that competition law should give access to AI models? Well, the UK competition regulator, the Competition and Markets Authority, last week issued an initial report on how to engage with foundation models, LLMs and the like. And they looked at three areas, competition in the market for foundation models, downstream effects, and consumer protection. And in the consumer protection area where their authority is a little bit like you'd get from the FTC in the US, they've proposed a number of principles, one of which is transparency. So people have picked up on this story that there's going to be a UK requirement for transparency, but it's just one of many principles under generally applicable law. And in fact, the UK is being much less prescriptive about this. I was talking to one of our Steptoe partners who's lobbying in Brussels on the EU AI Act requirements on foundation models. And apparently the EU is being sort of at the most willing to regulate big tech. And the UK is at the other end of the spectrum, even less than the US wanting to regulate big tech because the UK kind of sees itself as the European destination for big tech now. Where that's yeah. how it said that's how Rishi Sunak wants to sell it. So I think it's interesting that the UK wants to take a competition law approach. But what I would read from that is not that they're looking to impose restrictions, but it's that it's light touch regulation based upon generally applicable law. Got it. Okay. And while talking AI, there was a story about the CIA building uh, its own model, which I thought was, well, duh, <laughs> of course they are. And then the story kind of went off and said, they're doing this in rivalry with China, which already has an AI that can prosecute people, which struck me as 
kind of a non sequitur. Yes, they feel competition from China, but I doubt they feel competition from its AI prosecutor. Yeah, I, I would say well done is about the right analysis here. These tools, many of which are open source, make it easy to build cool stuff with foundation models. We know they hallucinate, and generally, I think bad publicity aside, the CIA doesn't want to make up facts. The intelligence community sometimes hallucinates, as, as we well know from uh, the WMD hunt. It's subject to a variety of constraints that sometimes lead it to get things wrong. Uh, so we just need to be cautious about how we use these tools. I have to say, I've tried using the easy free ones and they're not very good. So I'm not sure I'm enthusiastic about the CIA relying heavily. I think they're time savers for, you know, for in simple, not in the very high skilled jobs, but in for the massive ocean of CIA analysts. And they got a lot of those people. These are time saving tools. And you can't use the public ones because you can't put confidential right. intelligence into ChatGPT. So I think it's well done. They're going to use these tools and that's what they're doing. I agree with you that China analogy is irrelevant. I worry that, that in fact, writing up intelligence, using stuff that's in your databases is much harder to do than pulling it off of the internet. The internet has errors for sure, but those are, broadly speaking, most of the stuff there is largely consensus. But the intelligence that we have, there's a lot of stuff that you say, I don't know that I believe this, but I'm glad to have it. And I want to come back to it and see if I get four more reports like that. And otherwise, I'm not even going to include it in my summary for policymakers. So the amount of lying that shows up in intelligence reports is staggering. It's not even the intelligence community's lying. It's the lying of the sources. And if you don't have an eye out for that kind of tilt and bias in the data you're working with, you're going to ingest it and then cough it back up in ways that really are bad for good decisions. Yeah, the good versions of these tools, though, will reference the sources to yeah. the summaries. And so if you're being responsible, you don't just use the summary as it's produced, but you check the sources. And it's just a matter of being a time-saving tool that can pull it together from disparate sources with the references. Fair enough. Okay, we're going to we're going to bang through about four or five stories. The uh, President's Civil Liberties Oversight Board produced a report on Section 702, which listeners to this podcast have heard about quite a bit. The two takeaways from the report are, first, they looked hard at all of the classified evidence and concluded that Section 702 is a really valuable, really effective program and it ought to be renewed by the end of the year, which is the deadline. And then it splintered between the Democratic appointees, three of them, and the Republican appointees. The Democratic appointees said, but there have been so many mistakes in doing queries against the 702 database, particularly those that deal with U.S. person data, that we think the courts should actually be interposed and the FBI should not be able, and actually none of the agencies should be allowed to do a search for a U.S. identifier without prior approval from the FISA court. The chair went a little further and said, I think it's constitutionally required that that policy be in effect. So Congress should adopt that because the Constitution requires it. She's probably, you know, she's contradicting a dozen FISA court opinions on that. So I'm not sure she's persuasive. But that was how far she wanted to go. And then the two Republicans 
took a very different view and they said, first, you haven't told us that there's any particular abuse that you've identified. You found a lot of mistakes, but not a lot of deliberate abuse, malign searches. And your remedy, having the FISA court involved, is not going to solve any of the problems that you've identified. In fact, they'll make a lot of the intelligence collection worse. So instead, we're going to recommend a, a set of reforms that reflect some actual problems that we've seen in how the intelligence community interacts with civil liberties mainly civil liberties of interest to Republicans, not surprising. So they sound a lot like me on these things. But I think at the end of the day, the report came out just as we were getting ready for a shutdown. They splintered so badly and they've written a good and detailed report that is too hard for anybody to get through quickly. And they've come up a little late. So I'm guessing not going to be a big impact on this debate. I just don't see this probable cause FISA review thing taking off. It's been around a while and it just hasn't gotten the legs, in my view. That's point one. Second point, talk about golden oldies. The Biden administration's FCC, which we said last time, was going to be bringing back a lot of old favorites because they finally got their fifth Democratic vote, said, let's bring back net neutrality. Paul, is this 2010? Well, they certainly hope it is. I mean, there's this, I think, a minority segment out there who cares about this intensely. And I think that's sort of been the style at times of this administration have, you know, small groups that have intense preferences that more or less they see as good, loyal interest groups. I don't, I've never understood the argument. Tim Woe is one of my best friends. I admire him greatly, but given that the consumers are heterogeneous, I don't see why the services, as long as they're sold transparently and maybe with a floor, why you can't have heterogeneity in the market. Uh, yeah. I just don't get it. But I don't think we're going to see it before 2025 at the soonest. And with litigation, I don't see it will be on offer before 2028, 2029. Yeah. It had its moment and its moment was 2010 or earlier even. And that's when we had a whole bunch of illusions about how the internet worked and those poor little social media platforms needed to be protected against big bad telecom. We don't live in that world anymore. Amen. Okay. The issue that I think we are going to see that's still been just a bit below the, the radar, but rising first is the White House is really angry about the failure of cloud providers to do customer reviews, to know who their customers are. And the big cloud providers, big data center companies, say Amazon and Microsoft and Google, are just as hard over that they are not going to do KYC because they think it'll be really hard to do and that they'll lose customers to T-Mobile or, or Alibaba. But it was interesting that this flared up because the NSTAC, which is really a government advisory board, wrote a draft opinion to the White House saying, you really, really, really should not do KYC, know your customer rules. And the White House senior official responded almost immediately saying, you know, in responsible industries, responsible companies know who their customers are as, you know, there's just an aggressive response. So we're going to see, I think, an effort to regulate in this area that is going to be pretty determined on the part of the administration, and it's going to be fought pretty hard by the data centers. Okay, last topic. I didn't understand. Well, I guess I, I do kind of understand this. Maury, there was a story that said mobile app stores in China have 
responded to a new Chinese law by complying with the requirement that they identify all the apps and make sure that the apps that they are selling through their app store have been vetted by China for compliance with the law. And probably two dozen app stores complied and announced their compliance by the end of the month. And Apple wasn't on the list. Does this mean, is it reasonable to assume that Apple is struggling to figure out how to comply with this and that we're going to see a bunch of really awkward conversations and posturing by Apple as it tries to kind of comply and kind of get off the hook and at the same time is making headlines about all the apps that it's going to have to throw out? Yeah, I think that's broadly right. I mean, what the law seems to say is that apps need to have a presence in China and they need to not include illegal content. And this needs to be vetted on an app by app basis. And it's been possible to sort of sideload popular apps like I think Instagram into China, iPhones in China via the Apple App Store, which is no longer going to be possible. And so China is 20% of Apple's business. There's also Huawei is really making a comeback in China with some of its new chips as well. And no question that the Chinese government will want to a row in that particular race. So I think that this is part of the pressure on Apple and it will be a big deal. And Apple, there's no sign that Apple is going to be kicked out of China, but they may have to kick some apps off its China app store. So they'll get bad publicity every place but China because of their efforts to comply. And there's a distinct possibility that they won't comply to the satisfaction of the Chinese government, which will lean on them harder, constrain their sales in some way. So the one company that has been, or maybe one of two companies that has been immune from the pressure of the Chinese government to leave the market to national champions, that company is going to be under more and more pressure. I think that's right. All right. Well, that's a cheery note. Paul, Nick, Maury, thanks. This was a really delightful discussion and very substantive lots to chew on. Listeners, if you liked it, send us fan mail at cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a review on whatever you use to download podcasts. We read them on the air when we find them and we think they're entertaining. Finally, this has been a wrap to episode 474 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. Yeah, sorry. Life as a censor is tough. <laughs>